All right. Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 28. Uh, I have to confess my own shortcomings. Uh, as Friday night, I was looking and thinking, I didn't realize this, we were this far in the Psalter, and it turns out we weren't. Uh, I have completely skipped over Psalm 27. Um, that is not intentional. I still think Psalm 27 is part of the canon. Uh, I just don't know how to math good. So um, we will return to Psalm 27 at some point in the next few weeks. Um, my apologies, but tonight we will I'll give our attention to Psalm 28. It's a psalm of David. It says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, the work of His hands. He will tear them down, build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Now save your people and bless your heritage. Be the shepherd, be their shepherd, and carry them forever. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Uh, our gracious God and Father, as we hear the words of the psalmist, as he cries out that you would hear his pleas for mercy, we join uh, in that cry, asking that you would not be far from us, but that you would hear us and that through the psalm you would train us to pray aright. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just a simple thought experiment, I'd like us to consider what would happen if the Lord did not, in fact, hear our prayers. What would our situation be? What if God could not hear, or what if He could hear and He was not able to do anything about it? I think all of us would immediately recognize how wretched our fate would be. And yet, such is the situation of every other religion on the face of the earth. Of all the masses of people who gather week in and week out to worship these pagan deities that are, according to Isaiah, blind and deaf and mute, these gods that cannot see, cannot hear, and cannot speak, for they are, in fact, no gods. And so we see so many people waiting for a call that will never come. Seeking out an answer that they will never hear. And they are left open and vulnerable to the miseries of a fallen world. Presently relying off of false hopes and perhaps blind superstitions to get them through. And also left with a future faith that ends in their consummate destruction 
because they have no redemption apart from the one true and living God. I think this helps situate uh, situate our present position to understand what a great privilege it is that we have. That we have a God who, in fact, does see. A God who does hear. A God who does answer and prayer, uh, answer our prayers. You know, as, a, as the great, one of the great Wesley hymns goes, that he is willing and able. Come and doubt no more. It's significant that both are present. How awful would it be to have a God who is willing yet impotent in terms of answering prayer? Or a God who is able to answer our prayer yet unwilling? And here we find tonight David exulting in the God who is both willing and able to save to the uttermost all those who believe. For the God of Israel's Messiah, here is the one true and living God who sees, who hears, who responds, who is that blessed calm that gives peace in the midst of the storm. It's really an interesting study in contrast when you contrast this psalm with the previous psalm, Psalm chapter 27, which we'll consider at some future point. I think it's really interesting, whereas David in Psalm 27 contemplates the habitation of the righteous, here he considers the tent of the wicked and the fate that will befall the wicked on the last day because they do not have a mediator, because they do not have a God who will come to their aid because they are crying out to false gods. So I'd simply like us to consider two points in this psalm this evening. First, we'll consider the matter of pleading in verses 1 to 5, and then the matter of blessing in verses 6 to 9. So pleading and blessing, again, you see the main theme here uh, is, um, you see verse 2, if you compare verse 2 to verse 6, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy, that's the first half of the psalm, second half of the psalm, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. I mean, that's really what is going on here. David has cried out for mercy and for aid and comfort, and the Lord responds affirmatively. What we see here in these first five verses, the matter of David's pleading. This is the form of the prayer or the psalm that we have before us. It's what we uh, can call a prayer or psalm of supplication. And of course, even as the psalm begins saying it is of David, it should attune our ears to read this in a messianic context. This is the prayer of the Davidic king. It is the prayer of the Messiah. Even as he enters the sanctuary to offer up prayers for deliverance. Here in the first verse, here the Davidic king contemplates the consequences of what it would be for a deaf and mute deity to stand present in the temple. David here recognizes that there is only one thing that will save him from the fate that befalls all men. It's the reality that each and every one of us are going to die. Lord, hear my pleas for mercy, lest I be swept away with the rest of the wicked into the pit, into the grave. As all the host of humanity are reaching out and clamoring for salvation, be it in Baal or Ashtaroth or Molech, those people have found no certain salvation, no security. For those who call out to Zeus or Odin, to Quetzalcoatl, Or to Allah, they are left 
with the same circumstances. All of these countless deities whose shrines pollute the earth are empty, disconnected phone boxes. If you don't even remember the phone booths. I don't think they even have phone booths anymore. You walk into a phone booth and you put in your, your quarter and you make, you make your call. Well, it doesn't do any good if the phone box isn't connected to anything, if there's nobody on the other end. Yet certainly that is what these pagan shrines are like. They are like a disconnected telephone box. You're just wasting your quarters. David's prayer, as he reaches out and calls out to the one true God, he says, O Lord, O Yahweh, if you do not answer me, the one, the true, and the living God, He who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that He is and all He is determined to be, David recognizes his fate. I will be swept away along with the tide of a rebellious humanity. I will certainly perish. And so in this second verse, he recognizes that he is calling out to the only salvation that is on the line. He says, O Lord, hear. Do what these other no-gods are unable to do. Hear my plea for mercy. Deliver me from the pit of death, from the pit of destruction and despair. And now in verses 3 to 5, he begins to spell out those specifics as the Messiah, this Davidic king, contemplates the fate that awaits the wicked. You see this in the first half of verse 3. The Lord, do not treat me as the wicked. Well, notice what it is that the wicked do. Those who are the workers of iniquity, they speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. I think we should stop and consider uh, who these wicked men are and not simply rush over this. I think it's so easy to align ourselves with the cause of the righteous. And one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs does this as he kind of contemplates the fate of uh, every uh, war in the, 20, in the 18th to 20th century, uh, where everybody seems to be claiming to have God on their side. But we need to stop and ask ourselves, to what extent do the wicked characterize our own hearts and personalities? What fruit am I bearing in my life? Here, the Messianic king points not to the outer works of these men, because in many ways their outer works look little different from the righteous. Rather, he points to what's going on in the heart. They speak peace with their neighbors. Everything on the surface looks okay. But underneath the surface, there is something vile afoot. There is an incongruity between the heart and the mouth. Elsewhere, such types of people are called flatterers, those who, whose speech are described as being smoother than butter, yet whose heart was war. As Psalm 55 tells us, it is the one who blesses with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. James himself writes about such a person. Who is it that can tame the tongue? The implication is nobody. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. The Apostle John addresses the same matter. If someone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. 
The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And here, David, in praying, points to the people who are speaking kindly to those around them, and yet it is a mask. They are hypocrites. They are flatterers as war rages in their hearts. The Messiah looks and he knows. As the Scriptures say, that man may look at the outward appearance, but it is the Lord who looks at the heart And the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. He might strongly support those whose heart is completely set upon Him. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, seeing both good and evil, and the sin of man is not hid from His face. The face of Him who will render to man the reward for His treachery. And here we find a significant portion of the Davidic king's prayer, render to each man according to his deeds. Again, this is not something we should fly over because if you notice in verse 4, David prays this four times. Perhaps it's important. Look at verse 4. Give to them according to their work. Give to them according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Give them the wages that they have earned. Even as Paul himself reminds us that the wages of sin, the paycheck that is due us for our treachery, is death and damnation. The Messiah is not, this is not a prayer for vengeance. He is praying that the Lord would render proper judgment that would correspond with the deeds of the wicked. Over and over again, we find throughout the Scriptures, the prophets of old, even John the Baptist, even Jesus, even Paul, is by their fruit that you will know them. And so what David is praying here is not a prayer for vengeance. It's not a prayer of personal vendetta. In fact, there's no hint in this psalm that the actions of the wicked have been leveled against Israel's king. He's simply contemplating the fate of the wicked, asking that he not be swept up in that same scenario. In fact, what we see, the grounds, the reason for such treachery, what is it that they are doing so wrong? Where is this wickedness found? It is found in verse 5. Here's the grounds for why the Davidic king considers them to be so wicked. It's because they do not consider the works of the Lord. Again, what a stark contrast between this psalm and Psalm 27. Where David says, there's just but one thing that I've asked. To stand in the temple or the tent of the Lord. and To gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh. And yet among the hosts of humanity, there are so many who have no concern, no regard for this great realization. The promise of the sight of God that when we awake, as 1 John says, we will, be, we, will, we will be transformed because we will see Him as He is. This is our great hope. This is our great reward. But so many give little thought to this terrific, wonderful promise. And because they give no regard to that, they continue to nurture evil in their heart and they slander their neighbor. And so David says, render them true justice. Give them their just reward. What is that reward? It is that they would be tore down and not built back up like the 
foolish man who builds his house on sand. The waves come crashing down. The floods come up. The house is tore down because it is not built on the right foundation. Notice that this is not a generic destruction. You know, he's not simply praying, you know, uh, little Jimmy here stole ten bucks from me. Give him his due reward. Here, what is being contemplated is a final act of judgment. That language here, verse 1, of being swept away into the grave, of being dragged off with the wicked, is the fate that befalls everyone by the end of time, either at the end of our lifetime for sure. Unless the Lord returns, all of us in here will perish and die. And here, the king envisages a day when the wicked will be swept away in an act of judgment as a reward for their sin. He is focusing on the final judgment where the Lord will judge rightly. And so the king prays. The messianic king, may the grave not be my fate as well. Well, the first five verses are a cry for mercy from on high. Then in the second half of this psalm, we hear the Lord's response to the king's request. And we're reminded that where mercy is pleaded for, mercy is freely given. The second half of the psalm functions as a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. Here, the consequences of a hearing God are laid forth. Here is a God who hears. Here's a God who hears from His holy temple. And here's a God who responds with mercy. David has approached the Lord in the place where he is to be heard. Through that sacrificial system that God had appointed under the old covenant, whereby sinners could draw near and find pardon. David himself is a sinner just like the wicked, and yet there is a key difference. He knows there is a God who freely pardons. He knows the place where his cry for mercy can be heard. And so he comes to that place, the only way of salvation. And he blesses the true and living God, the one who hears and answers prayer. Again, verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. What God is there like our God? What rock is there like our rock? Here, he exalts in the one who is his only refuge and safe haven. This is not simply one fortress among many, as if when the storm comes, you can find yourself in Christ or in Baal or in some other deity. I remember when I was in graduate school, uh, one of my uh, Latin American studies professors um, he would, you know, I'm, I'm from the Deep South, so he would say that uh, there are a number of his students who would sign off their emails saying, in Christ, Jim, or, or, or Betsy, or whatever, and so he would respond by saying, with his closing line, in Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec god, to kind of, sm- to spite, is what he thought was something very jocular of the Christian faith. You know, there is no salvation to be found in any of these other gods. It is only here in the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Here is the God who strengthens us when we are assailed by the fear of death. And that is really what David is focused on. Don't let me be swept up in the tide of death. 
deliver me from the grave. Of course, we begin to see what, how this is ultimately prayed for by the Davidic son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is delivered from the grave ultimately. But what a strength it is to know that the, the grave does not have the last word, that it is not the final say in the life of the believer. It is a comma, not a period. It does not complete the story. Because as the Scriptures tell us, David's greater Son and David's Lord. Jesus, who being the eternally begotten Son of the Father, took to Himself uh, true blood and flesh. That He might, according to Hebrews 2, liberate all those who through the fear of death have been subject to slavery all their lives. This is why Paul, in quoting Hosea, can say, death, where's, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It's rendered moot. I think I've said this before, but how, how significant is it in the Gospels and even so much of the New Testament that for the most part, believers are not spoken of as having died what is it that Jesus says when there's the little girl who has died and, and, he, and, he, and he shows up to the funeral and he tells the family? She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And so often after that, the apostles pick up on that language of those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Even with Lazarus, uh, Jesus speaks of, come, let's go see Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let us go that I might wake him up. And the disciples don't understand. So Jesus has to speak plainly to him. I think the point of, of the Gospels and the New Testament passages that speak to this are not trying to downplay the gravity of death as if death is no big deal. How many of us have ever been to a funeral where uh, the, the minister or officiant will speak of death as being greeted like, a, like an old friend? That is not the biblical perspective. Death is the great enemy. Death is the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians. So how is it that Jesus can look on these things, say they're not dead, they're only sleeping? I think the reality is pointing to the victory that is found in Christ. That through Christ, death is now seen to be but a protracted nap time. Not because death is no big deal, but because the victory of Christ is so great over the grave. And we see hints of that here. As the Messiah prays, Lord, deliver me from the grave. What comfort this gives to the ailing soul, to the seasoned saint, to the Christian on their deathbed, that this is not the end. Not simply in case of uh, the, the transmigration of the soul or reincarnation, all these other kind of uh, uh, superstitious beliefs that other religions have, but we have the promised hope of, uh, hope of an embodied resurrection. That on the last day when our Savior comes, He will say, rise and shine. It's time to get up out of your grave. And just as it was with Lazarus, so the dead in Christ will rise. And yet, unlike Lazarus who was raised and had to die again, we will be raised to life indestructible. Here's a God who assures us that mercy is found through faith in Him. And so He shatters the death grip that has encrusted itself around our hearts. 
where we feel so full of anxieties and fears in the face of sickness and frailty and death, we, like David, can now say, my heart exalts in triumph and joy, and so with song I give thanks to Him. Because we have a God who is there, and He is not silent. We have a God who has spoken to us in the person of His Son, And so David exalts the Lord, that the Lord is the strength of his people. And here he says he is the fortress of his Messiah. He is the fortress of his anointed one. Perhaps we could put it differently like this. What David is getting us, because the Lord has saved his Messiah, all who are in the Messiah will be saved from the coming flood of judgment. That day when the world, as Peter tells us, will be doused not in water and deluge, but in fire and flame when the Lord returns to render each man according to his works and deeds. The question that we have before us is, will this God be to us a fortress and refuge from the wrath to come? Or will we be left naked and exposed at the coming judgment? Will we be found protected by His Christ who bore the wrath of God at Calvary by dying in our stead? Or will we be as the rest of the human race who will receive the recompense of a life of sin and treachery? Where we will find out what Paul really meant when he said the wages of sin is death. Though the wages of sin is death, we find the great news of Him who is our fortress and our rock, that in Christ amnesty is given, and with it the free gift of eternal life to all who turn to the Lord's Messiah and find safety in Him. This is our prayer. This is David's prayer, that the Lord would be to us our strength, even as He was the refuge of His beloved Son, Christ, who with loud shouts and tears cried out for deliverance, and the Lord answered him, delivered him from the grave. May He so deliver us from death on that last day. And even until that day, David prays, and so with David we pray, that the Lord would be to us that good and faithful shepherd who carries us in His loving arms, that we might know that we have no reason to fear. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we do ask this evening that You would Use this psalm as a balm to our hearts as we are beset with so many anxieties and stresses and worries uh, that you would come to us in comfort and consolation, that you would remind us that in Christ, death has been undone, that in Christ now victory is assured. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.